This is the word of God from um, Ephesians 2, chapter 1 to 10, ESV version. And you were dead in the trespasses of sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the princes of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us life alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. So let me ask you this. Are you alive? Are you alive? Perhaps whether you answer the question is the best test, not what you answer. If you're able to answer that question, perhaps you are alive. But we should probably try to dig a little deeper than just that superficial question, am I living, am I breathing? The philosopher Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Is thinking enough to say that we're alive? Blake Lemoyne, have any of you heard of him? He's been in the news recently, a Google engineer who declared that Google's artificial intelligence is finally sentient, is finally alive. It can think for itself. Would we say that a Google computer is alive? <coughs> Excuse me. Neuropsychologists say it is not that we think, it's that we feel that says that we're alive. I feel, therefore I am. Now, as a parent, when I watch my children in a virtual online world gaming, and social media, which produces a lot of feelings. I don't know if they're really living when they're immersed in these virtual worlds, or really living, getting the most out of life when they're consumed with social media. Parents might say that when they see their kids stuck in a virtual reality or online social media, get involved, get a life, go, do, be. Is it looking at a tree? 
Is it smelling the roses? Is it going for a hike, jumping in a swimming pool? What does it mean to truly be alive? Is it what we do, our behaviour, that determines whether we're truly alive? Maybe it's all of these things. Maybe it's thinking, feeling and doing. Perhaps it's not just that we think, feel and do, but what we think, feel and do. And that's certainly what Paul argues in this text. Paul believes, and it's what God inspired him to write in Ephesians, that it is what we think, feel and do that determines whether or not we are alive. The text we just read, that Jane read to us, compares what humans are by nature, dead, and what humans can become by grace, alive. So let's ask ourselves the question, are we alive? And instead of listening to the philosophers or the Google engineers or the neuroscientists or even the parents, let's go to the source of all wisdom, the creator of all things. Let's go to God and answer this question from his perspective. Now, you may not realize this, but in the last couple of weeks, we managed to get, after COVID, all the Bibles back into the pews. So you are not in the habit of pulling those Bibles out yet and following along, but I encourage you to do so. Grab a Bible and open it to Ephesians chapter 2 and work through this text with me. Okay, what does it mean to be fully dead? If we're going to ask what the question means to be alive, let's look at the counter-argument. What does it mean to be fully dead? And this is covered by Paul in Ephesians in the first four verses of chapter 2 that were read this morning. Let me read them to you. These four verses focus on what it means to be dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Dead means, if we look at these three verses, being controlled by the world and its values, values the devil and his minions and the cravings of our flesh. Dead means being controlled by the world, the devil, and the flesh. Let's look first of all at verse 2, the world. Now, we're talking here about fashions, whims, values, and priorities. And we're not saying, by the way, that those things are necessarily bad. In fact, many of them are good. Many of them are outworkings of God's grace in the world. The philosophers, the neuropsychologists, the parents and the engineers, these are blessings from God. It's when these things get worked out in such a way that these smaller values or smaller priorities take priority over God's priorities. It's always good to be in the world, but not of the world. And when we judge ourselves by superficial standards, by smaller standards than by God, that's when the world starts to take over, starts to control us. Are we thin enough, pretty enough, rich enough, clever enough, liked enough, respected enough? Are we consumed by the fashions and the whims and the values and the priorities of this world? Or do we bring the values of God, the priorities of God, through these things into the world? What we determine 
to be of most value and most priority determines how we behave. The ends effectively justify our means eventually. As things break down, we go to the ends justifying the means. And when we see a world which is aggressive, selfish, greedy, patronizing, manipulative, and controlling, we know that it is not the values of God or the priorities of God which are prevailing. So let's ask the question, how are we doing? How are we doing as a world in creating a just, violent, free, fulfilling world? How are we doing? I'm just going to read out a list of words. Ukraine, inflation, polarization, mass shootings, racial tension. How are we doing? How are we doing as a world creating a just, violent, free, fulfilling place. Do you want to be controlled by the values and the priorities of this world? The devil. Do you believe in the devil? You should believe in the devil, the great deceiver, the one who tells us that we're better off without God, who tells us God doesn't want you to thrive, God doesn't care, God doesn't exist. Be like me, the devil says. Be your own God. Define yourself outside of your creator. Throws anything at us to distract us. Always placing shiny objects in front of us. Look how thin, pretty, rich, clever, liked, respected you can be. Chase these, not God. Define yourself. And it would be nice if we could stop here, right, and say, it's all the fault of that terrible, horrible world. And the devil, it's all him. But you get to verse 3 and we see the other problem here is the flesh. We can't blame the world or the devil. Sure, they call us away from God, but we listen. We're ruled by our flesh, following our desires and our thoughts. Now, there's a temptation here to believe that flesh means lust, sexual lust. And that's a way, way, way too small a definition for what flesh means. A better picture of it can be found in Galatians 5, verses 16 to 18. I'll read them to you. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So you see here, anything... Anything which is saying, I want to be ruler of my own life. I want to be king of my own kingdom. I do not want to be submitted to God. I don't believe in his role as creator and sustainer. I don't believe in his authority. Any of that is a desire of the flesh. And we see how we're supposed to respond to that. Because in a fallen world, there are times when we are confronted by things which Honestly, we don't want to do. And that doesn't mean we fall straight away into sin just because we have those desires. We are confronted and often by cases where we know what is right and we know what we, our heart may want to do or our fear or anxiety produces in us, but we choose faithfully either to submit to God or we choose to be and move into our own kingdom. Now, we know that we can have those feelings because Jesus himself had those feelings. Jesus himself, as a man, tempted in the garden, responded with these words in Matthew 26. 
He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So we see in this broken, fallen world, we need to submit to the will of the Father. And it is possible for us as humans to not want to go down that path because the world is not perfect and we don't want to deal with brokenness. But we choose, like Christ in his human form here, because Christ as God could never have had a different will from God. So this is Christ in human form saying, not my will, but your will. And that needs to be the walk we make in a broken world. Not my will, but your will. So we have a fallen world working model in Jesus himself. The flesh is when our will takes us in a different direction from the will of God. So we see here, dead means being controlled by the world and its values, the devil and his minions, and the cravings of our own flesh. And if you're thinking, dead, that sounds like a bad club to be in, here's the even worse news. It's not a very exclusive club or very hard to get into. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul is talking about the Ephesians. He says, as for you... You were dead in your transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rules of this kingdom. Of the... So you're thinking straight away, oh, it's those pagan Ephesians. It's those people who lived in that Asia Minor place where they worshipped any god that came along, that they basically were animists or they worshipped the Roman god if that gave, Roman gods if that gave them some sort of leg up in society. You'll remember Ephesians is where Demetrius uh, basically incited a, rob, uh, a mob to attack Paul when he started to uh, press against the making of idols. Demetrius being a silver maker who made those idols to worship the Artemis cult. You can find that in Acts. Today, it's not paganism which confronts uh, the truth, it's, or causes us to die. It's when we put our values and our priorities again. Some of these things have value as secondary derivative things that come from the truth of God. But when they get elevated to the highest value of priority, spiritualism, secularism, capitalism, socialism, these are the isms, not paganism, which replace God in our world, whatever the belief structures are that we think are more important than submitting to God through our will. But it's not an exclusive club. It's not just the followers of other isms which are problematic. We see as we go on then in verse 3, Paul, the very religious, conforming Jew who followed the law immaculately and to the letter, goes on to say, all of us, He's talking about himself and the apostles here. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So you see here then, it's not just the pagans, those who worship the other isms, it's also the religious, Paul and the apostles. You can be righteous, religious, and dead. And that's a scary thought. Religious, righteous, and dead. Let me ask you the question, why are you here? Are you here to encounter or explore 
Are you here or are you here to self-define? If you are here to encounter and explore, that's good. If you are here to self-define, that's deadly. You can be righteous, religious, and dead. So, despite what some politicians might think, morally, all of us, we are all, every single one of us, part of the basket of deplorables, deserving of his wrath. Now, this is where we begin, all of us. Controlled by the world, the devil, and our flesh. By nature, by nature, deserving of God's wrath. But it's not the whole biblical story of what it means to be human. We are made in God's image, and we reflect the image of God to the world. We are creatures of great value and worth to God. So God acts to restore. John Stott has done a lot better job than I have in summing up the message of this passage. He sums up Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 with four words. You're you're dead, but God. You're dead, but God. God. In this case, we've dealt with the you're dead part of the text, so let's move on to the but God part of the text. And this is the bit which is a lot more positive. What does it mean to be fully alive in our whole being, in our head, in our mind, in our heart, with our emotions, in our hands, with our behaviours? What does it mean to be fully alive in Christ? We have a radical problem. We're dead, and it requires a radical solution, a but God solution that makes us alive in the head and the heart and with our hands. And Paul lays out a truth at the beginning of this, a fact, a foundation to build your reality on. And I'm going to read through verses, the second part of verse 4, 5, 8 and 9. I'll make that as coherent as I can because I'm going to jump a little bit and I'm going to come up with a summary statement. Like the rest, sorry, end of verse 4. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Jumping down to verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works. And then moving on to verse 9 so that no one can boast. Okay, so the summary statement is this. Saved by grace through faith, not works. Saved by grace through faith, not works. So let's unpack each of them because this text pulls those apart completely. Saved you read through the verses from 5 through 8, you see that saved doesn't mean some sort of esoteric cloud-sitting activity in heaven. It means we are raised up and seated with him and we share in his inheritance, his physical inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. This is a relationally driven restoration that doesn't just apply to us, it applies to our community and to the world in which we live. 
It leads to true thriving and fulfillment, thriving in submission. Now, I need to unpack what thriving in submission means because the word submission is such a horrible word in our culture today. And usually at this point, I break out into my well-used metaphor of the bird, the worm, and the fish. But you've probably all heard that one before, and if you haven't, come and ask me, and I'll explain it to you or say again. I'm going to use a different one from Tom Keller today. I'm going to use the uh, watch and the hammer analogy. Now, a watch thrives not when it's being used to hammer in a nail. A watch does not do well when it chooses to hammer in a nail. A hammer does not do well telling the time. You look at the hammer and you say, oh, it's got two little forks, maybe it's two o'clock. You look at the other end, maybe it's one o'clock. You use your hammer, your watch to hammer in a nail, it'll only ever work once, and I'm not sure how far the nail's going to go in. We thrive when we live into what we were created to be. We thrive when we submit in that sense to what God has made us for. So we have this idea of salvation, which is relational restoration, thriving through relationship, through the relationship of submission, in real tangible ways. Our life and our world and our experience and in the coming kingdom completely we will live this fulfilled, satisfied, content, integral, shalom-based life. God's grace, God's grace just means unmerited favour. Through faith, now this is so hard to get a handle on. Through faith, faith just means a life that points to Jesus. But the problem is with this, it says, but faith itself is a gift. So a life that points to Jesus is in fact a gift. Now, how do you have a through faith, salvation through faith, and see that as not something that we do ourselves? Well, if you've ever been to Sydney, you will know that there are two sides to the harbour. There's the east side and, the, and, well, there's the north and the south, effectively. And the way you get from one to the other is through a tunnel. But you don't own that tunnel. That tunnel exists it's the vehicle, it's, it's the mechanism from getting to one side to the other. But you don't have any stake in that tunnel. You drive through the tunnel to get from the north to the south or the south to the north. In the same way, faith is the vehicle through which our salvation comes. It's the tunnel, in a sense, which God uses. But it is not something that we have any claim to. It is a gift from God in the same way as the tunnel in Sydney Harbour, I guess, is a gift from the government whoever decided to bestow that on the citizens of Sydney. So, God's grace through faith, not by works. And this is just the antithesis making the point that faith is a gift. Saved and by works do not go together. Saved and by works, they don't fit in the same place. So we've got this idea, this this truth, this fact, this foundational reality to build our lives on, which is we are saved. Thriving through relationship, by grace, unmerited favour, through faith, the life pointing to Jesus, which is a gift given to us, and not by works. They never go together. Now, once you get that in your head, you're starting to get alive in your head. Your mind is starting to interact with the reality of who God is. So what does it then mean to be alive in the heart? Well, 
we already know that it's not because of us. It's actually because of him, his character and his nature. So I'm going to read verses 4 to 7, and I want you, as I'm reading and as you're reading along, to pull out the adjectives which tell us about God and why he saved us. <coughs> so let's read verses 4, uh, verses four through uh, 7. And I'll, I'll help you with my emphasis. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we're dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show his in incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. So I hope you pulled out those three adjectives, love, mercy, and kindness. So as you wrestle with this God who is loving and merciful and kindness, as you confront those, not just wrestle with them, but confront them, how do you respond? How do you respond? I think kindness is the easiest. When I get to a place where I can trust that there's no ulterior motive, someone is just being kind to me, I moved to move towards them. I said, this is a person, a safe person. This is someone I want to be around. This is someone that hanging out with is pleasant. I have no fear here. It feels safe. I think mercy is actually the hardest because you start with having to accept that you need mercy. It's a hard place to be. It's an anger. An anger can rise in and up in us because it forces us to confront our self-definition. We say, I think I can do it on my own. I'm good enough. I don't need God's mercy. No, you can't. And we do. But once we get past the reality that we need God's mercy, we move to a place of gratitude and humility, one without boasting, one without the need to self-project. I don't need anything to tell me who I am because I knew who I am in Christ. I think love is the most powerful because this is not talking about soppy, saccharine love. This is talking about sacrificial, die-on-the-cross love. Now, my family will tell you that when we watch a movie, I'm really prone to cry if there's any redemptive narrative whatsoever. Now, we can be watching a story about six uh, like little Dalmatian puppies that are conquering the world. And one of the puppies sacrifices something Maybe it's the collar that he loves for the other Dalmatian puppies to live. And I'm starting to bawl my eyes out. <laughs> Somehow I connect to that sacrificial narrative, that, that love which gives, you know, it, uh, and it really, really touches me. It moves me. I cry at redemption through sacrifice. We have an emotional response to kindness, mercy, and love. And when we start to understand who God is and see his character and his nature, we appropriately respond to that with our own emotions of gratitude, of humility, of being moved, of moving towards, of trusting. So what does it then mean to be alive in the hands? So our perspective produces an emotional response which produces an emotional behaviour. I said I cry at redemptive movies. But movies imitate life. 
at the center of the arc of all of history is God's redemptive narrative. We've already looked at what that is. Saved by grace, through faith, not works. Now, when our head wraps our head wraps itself around that, saved by grace through faith, not works, and our heart responds to God's love, mercy and kindness, our hands respond with that gratitude and with that longing and with that moving forward by knocking and seeking and submission that leads to the freedom of being what we were created to be. And our head and our heart and our hands come alive, come alive together. Now, of course, the question is how? How do we submit to this? What does that look like? And the answer is in the text, and we see that in verse 10. Let me read that to you. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us in advance. So we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So we are doing what we were created to do. We're being a watch when we're a watch and a hammer when we're a hammer. And the question still arises, well, how do I work out what it means to be a watch or a hammer? And I'm going to say that there are two answers to this question. There's the now answer and the coming kingdom answer. Let's start with the nice one. The coming kingdom answer, whatever your gifts are, whoever you were created to be, you're going to find a way of fully expressing them without frustration. And you're going to live in a way where you're completely fulfilled in submission to Christ in a beautiful harmony with everyone else around you with no sense of frustration or resentment or any of the other problems that we have in the world today. You are going to be completely fulfilled in a world which is completely fulfilled and unified in a harmony with a chorus of work and play and relationship which glorifies God. Amen to that. Come, Lord Jesus, come. What does it mean in the now, in a world which is broken and marred by sin? Well, it means that we, we listen to the Spirit by looking at the world and looking at need, taking into account our gifting and our desires, our God-given desires. And I have to say this, and it's not an easy thing for Christians to hear, we have to do that in that order. Need, gifting, desire. You can't ignore a calling put in front of you. You just can't ignore it. If you see need, if you see brokenness and God drops it in front of you, you can't do a good Samaritan routine and cross to the other side of the road and walk past it. No matter what desires you think you have or what gifting you think you have, if God drops a need in front of you, you ought to respond to it. The Good Samaritan could have said, you know what? God is calling me to a conference in Damascus. I don't want to be late. No, the need is in front of you. You need to respond. And we need to hear that because in a culture which is so individualistic, the temptation is always to go to the desire. God has put this desire in my heart. I warn you, do not trust those desires. The world and the devil are out there tempting you. And you will think in the most righteous, religious, spiritual way that you are following those paths, but you are not. If the need is in front of you, be obedient. So, 
coming to the conclusion, are we alive? Are we alive in Christ or are we dead in our sins? And Paul makes it clear there are only two choices. We are either alive in Christ or we are dead in our sins. Life with God means being, life without God means being the living dead. Being the living dead. And it doesn't matter if you have the body of a world-class triathlete the mind of a great academic, or the personality of a reality TV star. Without a life transformed by God, you are spiritually dead and on a path to emotional and physical death, an eternal death of darkness, loneliness, coldness, bitterness, an eternal life consumed by resentment, fear, shame, and guilt. Life with God means being alive in the head, the heart, and the hands. Alive with Christ in our whole being. Living as we were designed to live. Thriving as we were created to thrive. Living with Christ and sharing in His inheritance. So I've got one question for you to meditate on. One question as you walk away. Are you alive? Are you alive? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very confronting passage by Paul who, who really brings into our, into our minds and our hearts this very confronting question. Are we alive or are we dead? Father, we are convicted as we hear this of the words of John Stott who took from this passage the saying, you're dead but God. And we, uh, we ask you, Father, to plant that on our hearts. It is not us, it is you. There is such freedom in responding to you, such joy, such hope. And it's not easy. It's not always, not always what our will is in a broken and fallen world. But Father, that just makes us long more for your coming kingdom. Help us to be alive, alive to you, alive with you, alive to the promise of the coming kingdom and alive in obedience to you now in this broken and fallen world. Help us to have the perspective saved by grace through faith, not works. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.